I would imagine that there is some sense in which giving and not telling is important if pride is an issue. It appears that when Barnabas gave, it was known that he gave because the the uh, Bible tells about his giving and how um, how people uh, knew about it and appreciated it and how it encouraged others. So I think that's one of those things, you know, that not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing seems to be a way of protecting us from pride. There are times that we give and it's impossible for it not to be known. Uh, There are direct relationships that God will bring us into wherein we're called upon to give. And in being called upon to give, uh, it's going to be known that, that we were giving. And so if I waited until I was absolutely certain no way could anyone could know, I probably wouldn't be able to give in that instance. So I would say that we have to just guard against pride and know that if pride is an issue, we're going to be like the Pharisees in Matthew 6 and 7 where it says they give in order to be noticed by men and that's the only reward they're getting. In other words, the Heavenly Father is not rewarding them with growing their righteousness, nor is he rewarding them with laying up treasures in heaven. So that's it. You just It's kind of like spending your money at the fair. That's all you're going to get out of it. <laughs> it's just gone. It's just absolutely. I remember taking a girl to the fair one time when I was 16. And, you know, when you're 16, you get a car and you can go on a real date. And we went to the fair. And I blew like 150 bucks. And back then, that was a whole lot of money, you know. That was, uh, that was 40 years ago. And that was a lot of money. And I had a lot of fun, but the next day I was like... I don't know about that. That that's not really working for me right now. Uh, so that that was just really a. So yeah, I think that there should be some degree of secrecy, and I believe if you request anonymity, it should be guarded. I have friends, church members, folks who give very generously to certain causes within the church, and they say, "I don't want anybody to know that I was ever." A part of this so that my pride is not inflated by it. I want it to be totally anonymous. I am constantly amazed with how God gives. I had a person come to me the other day to pay for two people to go to Ecuador. That's that's $2,400. Just like that. And they said, I don't want anybody to know that this happened. Other than the fact that it happened. Not who. And... So those kind of things happen a lot. I've <laughs> had a young lady who was uh, uh, years ago who, through some circumstances, came into some money, and she brought me a $20,000 check and said, take this. This was when I was pastoring at Parkway. I said, take this and use this for ministry. I'm just put it in church and let it go to work in missions. And so God sent a lot of people all over the world for that. So. There's just a lot of things like that, and uh, the Lord knows sometimes it needs to be public, and sometimes it it doesn't. I always get worried when someone demands it to be public. 
If somebody came to me and said, you know, I would do so and so if you in trade for this would do this. I say, I can't do that. Uh, We were getting ready to do some work in Ecuador and somebody came to me from outside of the church and wanted to uh, do some things in honor and memory of a person. And I said, I want you to understand that's not how it works. I got really angry one year, about three years ago. I mean, I got hot. I don't get really angry a lot, but I got really angry because after we did this project in Ecuador, uh, we built the water system and we built these bathrooms to help a community. And somebody spray painted KBC on them. And I thought I was going to lose my mind. (laughs) KBC, nobody needs to know KBC. They need to know Jesus. That's all there, because in Ecuador, if you go to any place that something's been donated, they got this great big plaque or painting on the wall that has the person's name. There's a foundation called DINSE, D-I-N-S-E, and it's in every single community in Ecuador. And it just makes me sick to see it, um, because it's about the promotion of a name and a corporation or a person versus that which is good and right. So when somebody demands that it be public, I worry. Good question. Did that help? So the answer is, I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes. (laughs) Good. Other questions about giving or about this morning? Anything we shared in the message this morning? Something that kind of running around your head, you'd like for it to quit running, so you'd like an answer to it? Anything? Giving is a very sensitive thing, and When I tell you um, that our church is generous, I'm not kidding. Because I can't tell you all that goes on and all the people who do things, I just have to tell you, you wouldn't believe. You really wouldn't believe. I have seen some things that just stun me. Right now, there's there's ten families working with one single mom. And they are supporting getting her out of the project and making sure that she doesn't have to live in the projects. So they're supporting with their giving to make sure she lives in a safe place outside the project. She's a graduate from the Hope House. We're working now with some more folks doing the same thing. It's amazing. There are people who want to donate land and and, and uh, residences, and it's just amazing. God is at work in a tremendous way. So I'm very excited about it, how God is using that to get the gospel out. Well, Jeremiah, let's pray for wisdom. Father, as we look into Jeremiah chapters to and following, we have to ask something specifically of you, and that is for wisdom, that we may understand your word and that the word you have given us would be received the way that James says it, that we would humbly Receive the word implanted, which is able to save 
our souls. But that we would prove ourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So I pray that you would have mercy on us and give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Jeremiah. I tried to catch up our Wednesday night class with us because I missed that Wednesday with a little kind of a stomach bug issue. I wasn't able to get them there, and so I try to work a little bit to get them there this week. We are going to pick up um, around verse 26. That's where we tapered off last week and kind of left it with verse 28. So we're in a transition there. Let's kind of set ourselves back up. Jeremiah is prophesying to a people who have become entrenched in idolatry and immorality. That entrenchment has come through faulty national leadership, king and princes, Faulty political leadership, the judges and the people who worked in the what we would call a Senate or Congress level, what would be called the elders of the community. Faulty religious leadership, which would be the prophets and the priests. And faulty parental leadership, moms and dads. It's always at the grassroots that destruction is most effective. The enemy is not after the politics. You know, we get up into the politics and, man, we just get mad. I mean, just stomping red face mad. We get into politics and, oh, buddy, it gets hot. That's not where it all happens. It happens what you're doing at your house. That's where it's happening. It's happening in your home. And so what the challenge for us is to understand that through the centuries of the life of God's people, the faithful have been able to maintain disciple, evangelize, and even grow, not because of political leadership, but in spite of it. The greatest growth spurt in the history of Christianity was during the worst persecution, which was the early Roman persecution of the church. And the church spread all over the world. Unbelievable. And so, one of the challenges for us in assessing Jeremiah's time is helping us dig down to where theology meets life. Ravi Zacharias says there's three kinds of theology. He says there's ivory tower theology. And that ivory tower theology is the... the People who are the the pundits and they're the ones who are talking and they're either at the seminary or 
at the political think tank and they're at the pundit level and they have some influence. The second level is, uh, is the arts, the media, that which entertains the country and the messages of, of good or evil are, are infiltrated into a community through the arts, through media, through that which we listen to, that which we view, that which we entertain ourselves with. And then there's the kitchen table, where the trickle-down of the pundits and the arts actually meets life. It's where we decide to be faithful to our spouse or to abort our child. It's where we decide to be honest with our money or to cheat the government or our neighbor. It's where we decide the affairs of life. And that's the place our kids are affected. That's the place we disciple and we dream. And so what happens is that often the enemy gets us so tied up and worried about the political structure that we miss how both the arts and the kitchen table are actually having more impact than a thousand presidents ever will or a thousand kings Two things that happen, and Jeremiah is going to help us see those. At the kitchen table, we pass on to our children who and what we really are. I don't know if you've read the studies, but years ago, the Metropolitan Crime Task Force of the in Texas, it was either Houston or Dallas. I've forgotten which it was. I think it was Houston. We're trying to figure out how to deal with the, uh, the crime and the imprisonment rate in the cities. They're really concerned about it. So they just they did some studies and they went into the prisons and went into the prison system, went into the criminal justice system and started interviewing everybody that they could interview about how they got to where they are in the criminal justice system, that being incarcerated, being um, uh, accused, being convicted, all those things. Got any sense. So they're really digging around, and you know, there are a lot of, of psychologists and religious people who are going to come in and say, oh, it's Christianity, or oh, it's crime, or oh, it's poverty. <laughs> you know, everybody thought they knew the answer, and the answer absolutely flabbergasted everybody. Um, they, they built this set of questions, and I don't know where they got all the questions, but thankfully some people put time into the questions that were in the survey. And so they came down, and after all these criminals, all of these convicted people, all these folks in the criminal justice system, whether they're in prison or in conviction and out on probation or out on parole, what was the common denominator? Was it ethnicity? Was it poverty? Was it religion? Was it Christianity? Was, what was it? And the thing that they found out just absolutely astonished them. The one thing that all of the people had most in common who were incarcerated was this. Their families never ate together. That was it. They watched television. They were separate. They didn't talk. They didn't eat together. Never ate together. That was it. Robbie Zacharias, in pointing out the three levels of theology, was dead on. Because that's where you hand off.
who you are. And if you want to give your children an opportunity not to receive from you, simply fail to spend time with them. That's it. And so, um, this allowed the arts to be more influential. And if you are up to date on your arts, the arts are you know, television, internet, uh, music, uh, blogs, uh, YouTube. Uh, if you don't know about YouTube, you, you need to know. It's, it's watched more than cable television. It's watched more than network television across the air. Uh, unbelievable. There's, there are YouTube videos that kids have made that have 10 million views. Think about that. 10 million times someone has sat down and watched that video and some kid made it in his backyard. So the influence of the media and the arts is very powerful. And what happens is, is what we entertain ourselves with is often what we become. Now think about this. Some of you who have more gray hair than me or less gray hair than me, um, think about this. Uh, if your grandmother, okay, if you're my age or older, if your grandmother, our grandmother, um, let's go to great-grandmother. Let's go one more generation back. Great-grandmother, somebody that was born in, like, uh, for me, my great-grandmother would have been born um, uh, about 1875. Okay, my grandmother was born 1898. Um, And so, uh, 1875, somewhere along in there. Uh, If you took that person and dropped them in and let them watch one hour of cable television, what would their reaction be? They would. They'd throw it out the window. Grandma would have found a hatchet. All right? And she would have taken that television screen. She would have destroyed it. And she wouldn't have destroyed it because the screen is evil. What she would have destroyed it before is that because it has been allowed to become a medium of evil. And, and we really just recklessly let it flow. Let it flow. Uh, I'm not on an anti-TV crusade, so don't go get your scissors and cut your cable cord because um, that's not the solution. But it is a part of understanding how we've gotten to where we are. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. What was at one time something that would be censored is now not just not censored. It's, it's, a, it's the way they use for advertising. It's, it's just what they want to do. So, and, and, and I want to be careful because it would be easy for us to go, well, that's what's wrong with society. No, what's wrong is us. It's us. We're evil. That's why we like it. That's why it's so easy to sit and watch it. And whatever that thing is. And so there's this thing in us that's broken. We can fix all the television sets in the world, but we can't remove the evil from our hearts. That comes from a walking, living, great, wonderful, heartfelt relationship with the Lord our God. That's what God's getting to as the defense for Jeremiah and his time. So let's get to where we're going and why I mentioned those things. 
When Jeremiah starts confronting them, he certainly starts with the leaders. He says, woe to you shepherds. He's got that great sermon in chapter 23 against the shepherds. Ezekiel does the same thing. And then he takes on the priests and the prophets. But when he boils it down, he's boiling it down to the individual choices that every one of them makes. You see, when Josiah came in to do these reforms around the time that Jeremiah is preaching this first sermon, when Josiah Josiah comes in to do these reforms, the people don't buy into it. They don't. The king buys into it. He, he has a reform. And he buys into it. He starts smashing the high places. And he, oh, look, we found the Bible. <laughs> they lost the Bible. For like a generation, there's no Bible. Nobody's reading it. They don't even know where it's at. And they're cleaning up in the temple and they run into it. And they come back to Josiah and say... Hey, King, guess what we found? He said, what? We found the Bible. You mean the words of Moses, the servant of God? Yes, we have it. Read it to me. They read it to him and he tears his clothes. And he says, what an abomination we are. But the rank and file people, they don't buy into it. The kitchen table, they don't buy into it. The arts... They don't buy into it. Why? Because they're having a lot of fun. They're having a lot of fun. It is just this party. <laughs> it's Mardi Gras all the time in Jerusalem. And so, Jeremiah comes on the scene and he starts trying to expose this sin and get the people to confess. And they play games. And so, now judgment is coming. And this first sermon sort of serves as a header for all of what's going to go on in the book. That's why we're camping on it for so long, because it has so much to say. And so, he's gotten into verse 26, and he says, okay, guys and gals, we have a problem here. You've lost the ability to feel shame. You've lost it. This is this brazenness in sin. It's a, it's a, it's a sorrowful brazenness. So let me read through what we closed with last week in verses 26 through 28. As the thief is shamed when he is discovered, so... The house of Israel is shamed. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father. And to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face, but in their time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. Verse 28, but where are your gods which you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in the time of your trouble, for according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. So that was the closing last Sunday night when we got done and we said, whoa. Now, what Jeremiah is telling is how bad things are going to get. Jeremiah was hoping for repentance and Jeremiah is going to have two really powerful meltdowns during the time of his ministry. Maybe a third one is in there too, but two very powerful ones. One of them he's going to give us in, in Jeremiah 15 with that, have you become to me as a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable? The other's coming later when he says, uh, cursed is the day that somebody said a baby boy is born. Let that day just perish. I don't, 
I wish I was never born. So he's going to get really, really bummed out. But here, he's going to tell you why he's going to get bummed out, but he doesn't even realize this yet. Because he's hoping, as he preaches this, that the people are going to listen. He's hoping they're going to turn. And so, God says to them, almost what seems like tongue-in-cheek, let your stone gods come and save you. Let your tree that you say, my father, let that rise up and save you. Well, Jeremiah is hoping that there's sort of a tongue-in-cheek God saying, hey, look, this guy's in it. That may be shock them and they'll turn and repent. What God's saying is that's what it's going to come down to. Because God's going to pull out. Which is going to just blow Jeremiah away. But he's going to pull out. Ezekiel's going to give the picture of it. There's going to be this vision that Ezekiel has, and it's the vision of the Spirit of God leaving the temple and God abandoning the temple so that the temple can be overrun by the enemy. He's going to see that. And so Jeremiah is telling this, but from the rest of Jeremiah, you're going to see that he, he's wishing that it would kind of shock somebody. Well, it should shock them. I wish they would hear what a satire it is to go to a tree and to say, You are my father. And how stupid that is. But listen carefully. Write this down somewhere. Sin is never logical. You need to write this somewhere. (laughs) The next time you do something stupid, it'll explain why you did that. (laughs) Sin is never logical. And, and, and therefore, when it lays hold of us, it causes us to do irrational, illogical things. That a human being would bow down to a tree and call it that. It's stupid. But it's true. They do it. Cliff? Oh, yeah. Sure, I'm... We just bow down to a monkey and say it's my dad instead of a tree. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. This is phenomenal. And so, uh, let me let me share a couple of things with you that go with this. First off, uh, when you or a family member do something really stupid and you say, I don't understand why I did that, or I don't understand why they're doing that, here's why. Sin is illogical. It just it makes us do things that we cannot believe we did and we can't believe other people have done. And so here is very illogical things. Their number of deities have multiplied to be according to the number of their cities, verse 28. And, and when the time of trouble comes, God says, where's your buddies? Where's your gods? Where's your little stone amulets and your symbols that were there and your trees? Where, where, where is it? Because they're, they're not there because they're nothing. And it's going to be very, very surprising when the judgment comes. So let's go into verse 29 and following and see how God kind of lays out after that. He's going to talk to them in this section about how they're not getting it. Uh, This is one of those times where God says, I'm telling you and you're just uh, 
not listening. So, pick it up there. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain I have struck your sons. They accepted no chastening. Oh, come with me to Isaiah for a minute. All right? And I want you to be reminded about this chastening that he's referring to that has already occurred. Isaiah 1, 5. Isaiah 1, 5. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head. There's nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Well, verse 5, where will you be stricken? It's the picture of a father disciplining a son, and he's hit him everywhere on his body and left a mark. And he's saying, man, I, I have whooped you, I whooped you from head to toe to save your life. And you are one big sore. And yet you would not return. So the stricken is the picture of what's already happened north of them. Northern Israel has fallen. 722, about a hundred years before Jeremiah's sermon. It's already fallen. And so he's saying, how much more... Stricken can you get that ten of your twelve tribes are now captive and more than half of your land is overrun by desolation, desertion, enemies, foreigners, jackals. And there's no inhabitants up there. It would be like us here in our area having Alexandria fall to the enemy because of the judgment of God, and we over in Pineville on this side of the river just carry on like everything's normal, not knowing that right across the river is desolation. There's nobody at the Hotel Bentley. The airport has nothing but weeds growing up on it. Your favorite restaurants have nothing but jackals and wild animals running around. And we're over here on the other side of the river going, as long as it doesn't bother us. I mean, I know I'm... I like them all, but we've still got Los Portales over here. I mean, we're good. And they're ignorant of how broken the nation is. And this more than hundred years of brokenness. And they're just still not getting. God is saying in Jeremiah, where, where else would I strike you? Verse 30 of Jeremiah, again, chapter 2, jumping back from Isaiah back to, to, to Jeremiah 2. In vain have I struck your sons. They accepted no chastening. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. So God kept sending prophets to Jerusalem and they would kill them. They would kill them. All those prophets that went to the north and, and, and prophesied the fall of the north, they didn't listen to them. They killed them. 
some Jewish history tells us Isaiah was actually sawn in two. Not the glorious end of a ministry. Because they wanted to rid of his voice. And so he says to them, Accepted no chastening, your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Oh, generation, heed the word of the Lord. And then the Lord says, Have I been a wilderness to you? Or a land of thick darkness? In other words, I brought you into this land. I gave you the milk and honey. I gave you the lavish, beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. I gave it to you. I took you through the wilderness. I brought you through the wilderness. I've not been a wilderness to you. I have been, I've lavished my love on you. And yet you took and turned all that away. And what does he say they did with it? Look at what they did. He says, why do my people, this is the end of verse 31, say, we are free to roam. We will come no more to thee. So he's given them this beautiful land. He's given them this, all of these glorious things. They spanned during the reign of, of David and early reign of Solomon from way up north to way down south, all the way to the, to the east and, I mean, all the way to the west to the coast and all the way far into the east. And they had freedom and abundance and all this good and they were enjoying it. And they just walked away from it. Have I been to Israel a, a wilderness or a land of thick darkness? Why do my people say, we're free to roam, we will come no more to thee? They were spiteful about it. Now, the thing to remember that's going on in all of this, and the lure and the problem is this place called the high places. This is the recurring theme. It's in the high places that three things go on. Religion. Immorality. And community. These things came together. They felt united in these high places. So it was the, it was the cultural phenomenon, it was the cultural norm to gather at these high places. What y'all doing this weekend? Y'all know what we're doing this weekend. We're going up to the high place. Y'all want to come? Oh, dude, you know it. We'll be there. What y'all going to do with the kids? Well, a couple of them are old enough to come now, you know. We'll bring them. What about the little ones? We got some folks that they're not real interested in going to the high place. They'll watch the kids. See y'all there. So there's a sense of community that they all, they go there together. There's immorality. The thing that drew them to this was, it was the worship of fertility God and a fertility goddess. And so there on site were male and female cult prostitutes. Very beautiful people. Handsome. Attractive, beautiful, uh, seductive. We could use a lot of other words that we probably not want to use in here today. And 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 so it was just it was just the thing. And then they turned, they had religion with it because the whole thing was built around 
let's satisfy Baal and Asherah and all of the sub-deities that are a part of that so they'll bless us with this wonderful life that we have now. I mean, our economy's good and things are... And so we're just having a good time. And so these three things took place in the high places, the religion, the immorality, and the sense of community. It became their new sense of identity. We'll no longer come to you, God. We're all going to the high place. And so it became um, sort of ingrained in the community culture. It was like softball. <laughs> it's like Little League. It was like whatever. It, was just, it just became a part of what everybody was doing. And it, it drew the culture together so much so that all of this formed into a new culture. And this culture shaped the coming generations so that each of those generations grew further from the knowledge of God, deeper into sin and more devoted to the gods and goddesses so that this became the norm. It was the norm. Who do y'all worship? Well, officially, we worship Jehovah. But, I mean, he's got a temple in town. But, come with us this weekend, we'll show you what we're into. And that's what they did. And so, he says here, verse 32, Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride attire. There was a particular set of jewels or um, not necessary jewels, but crafted um, jewelry. It wasn't based on stones, but metal that a virgin was given at the consummation of her marriage. And they became a symbol of her covenant. Um, some of those were worn uh, as a headband, and they were very beautiful. And they were engraved or inscribed, and they were sometimes tied to the family history. They belonged to grandma or great-grandma or four generations back, and, and they would actually be a part of her attire. And any time any big event was going on, man, she'd deck out in that thing, and it was just a big deal. And it was sort of a, a cultural status thing within the community that you wear those things, and so you never forget them. And if, if you lose one, some people think that that whole ten coins thing over there in the New Testament, or the way lady is sweeping her house, was actually one of her um, one of her virgin trinkets or, 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 or virgin medallions that was tied to her ancestry going back generations, and why it was so important for her to sweep the whole house to find that one coin because it was passed down to her, and so. Here, a virgin, can can she forget her ornaments or her bride attire? You know, you break out the wedding pictures and how beautiful the gown is. Back then, uh, she would keep that and hopefully pass it down generationally to her daughters. So it was a really big deal because back then it's really expensive to make a dress, really hard. Uh, materials very costly, so it's something you pass down generationally. And she would never forget it. It was something that was very special and stored away. 
Um, yet my people have forgotten me days without number. The Lord's saying, I'm, I'm more precious than these trinkets and these outfits, and, but my people have forgotten me. The word forgotten is an important thing because it means to be displaced by something. What's happening is all of this is displacing the knowledge of God. Uh, There's no vacuum in the human mind. The reason they're forgetting is they're putting something in the place of. They're substituting. They're uh, incorporating something new and it's displacing the knowledge of God. It's not the kind of forgotten like um, like uh, I've got I've got some early dementia. It's kicking in and I can't remember something uh, because that like the connection's not there anymore. It's not that. It's not like old age. You know, people talk about um, uh, somebody comes in and, and says, "Hey, Pastor Bart, are you really concerned about the hereafter?" I say, "Yeah, I'm concerned about the hereafter because every time I go into another room, I think, what was I hereafter?'" Uh, that's how my age is really messing with me right now. Uh, I go from one room to the next, and I really can't remember what it was I was going to that room for. Uh, it's not that. It, it's, it's a kind of forgetting that is a displacing, okay? It's, it's a displacing. It's not the kind of forgetting like memory loss. It's the displacing of something. So that the mind is occupied with something new, and the other things are no longer called to mind. Their weekend fun and frivolity was displacing any knowledge of God as they sunk deeper and deeper and deeper into this immorality so that immorality became the norm. It was the norm. When you say everybody's doing it, that's what was going on in Israel. Everybody was doing it. So he says in verse 33, how well you prepare your way to seek love. Um. These people spend all week prepping for the weekend, high places. They're out in the field. What y'all going to do? Man, I can't wait to get off work Friday and head to the high place. What We've been saving all week so we can buy extra raisin cakes while we're up there and bring a few extra chicks with us. I mean, it's a big deal. So that's what's going on Monday, Tuesday, picking in the field. What y'all got going on? <laughs> Dude. We are planning on Friday when we get off work. We're headed. We're going to spend our Sabbath all day at the high place. How well you prepare your way to seek love. Remember, this is illicit, immoral love of foreign gods and love of the immorality. Therefore, even the wicked women you have taught your ways... Now, this is really strange. It's an idea (laughs) that they're so bad that um, a visiting prostitute comes to their town, passing through, working her wares, working her ways, or hoping to establish maybe a new business. Prostitution was a big deal back then. Still is today, but even bigger back then. And she comes to town and she wants to, you know, ply her trades. And the folks in town say, sweetie, you need to come Saturday up to the high place. We'll show you what we're about. She goes to the high place and she goes, 
I've been all over the world. I ain't never seen nothing like this. This wild. This is wild. She's learning new trade from the Israelites when her trade is to trade in human flesh. It's that bad. It's like they're excelling at evil. And so, verse 34, And also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor. Somehow in their immorality, justice went to the wayside. They stopped caring about God. They stopped caring about His kind of justice. And they started carrying out their own kind of justice. So they started eliminating barriers to fun. Eliminating barriers to frivolity. And those barriers were human beings. They started getting rid of them. And the very lifeblood means that they were, they were executing them. There was some kind of thing going on in which they were executing poor people because they were just sort of a burden on the society and in the way. And they were executing them to kind of get them out of the way. And it says, even though you didn't find them breaking in. In other words, you're carrying out a sentence on a person that they're not guilty of just because you want them out of the way. They're a burden to you. So now injustice is, 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 is growing and it's just horrid. Now here, verse 35 just tells us they're still not getting it. Yet you say what? What do they say? Verse 35. Not me. Who are you talking to? Who are you talking to? Are you talking to me? No, you're not talking to me. We're good to go. We went up to the temple last week. It was a great worship service. We actually offered a couple of offerings and, and paid our vows. I think I took, let's see, we, we had three sheep. We, we brought three sheep, you know, because I knew that there's probably a little bit of sin in my life. So we brought three sheep up, and they were pretty high quality because, uh, have you seen my flock? I brought some pretty good sheep. And uh, priests said we're good to go. And so you, you're not talking to us. They don't get it. Yet you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger is turned from me. The idea of anger being turned was almost always tied to a sacrifice. Um, When you look in the history of the Old Testament and the teaching that led up to this point, there was this time when people would give an offering and then you would hear, and it was a soothing what? Aroma. Good King James there. A soothing aroma before the Lord. And his anger was assuaged. His anger was taken. And so they're saying, we stopped by and did the soothing aroma thing, guys. Last, last, let's see, was it Friday night before we went to the high place? Yeah, Friday night, we all took, I think me and my buddies, they all had probably three or four sheep each. We had a great big slaughter that day. I know God's not angry with us because we did all those rules back there that he said to do, you know, uh, and we've done that. So we're going to go on about the next thing in our life. And so they're saying, his anger's turned from me. God says, <laughs> not. Halfway through verse 35, behold, I will enter in 
to judgment with you because you say, I've not sinned. This is part of the sorrow of what Jeremiah is teaching about. It's the inability of folks to see themselves as what they really are. And I think that this is the greatest problem with humanity. As I began last year kind of laying out three things in front of you, we'll be hearing more about it in the future. Know that the greatest need of all human beings is to know God. Grow. The greatest privilege we have in knowing God is to be shaped into His likeness and show the greatest responsibility we possess in knowing God and growing in His likeness. is showing other people what He's like through our behavior, character, and through the gospel being spoken to them. Until we know what God is really like, we never really get a sense of how sinful we are. They've lost touch with the Word of God, with His holiness, with the stories, with the history of Israel, with the holiness of God in such a way that God was just another deity who could be paid off with animals and a token. A nod. A nod to the God. And that's how they thought. And so they've come to the place where they're saying, I'm not sinned. We acknowledged Him. Isn't that what He wanted? He wanted a couple of lambs? We gave Him a couple of lambs. What's the deal? Why are you getting all up in our stuff here? you just judging us? And so they developed this mentality that if you give a nod to God through the sacrificial system, you're good to go. Look, this is a kind of religion that exists today. People say, look, man, I go to church. Well, get off my case. Who are you to judge what I'm doing in my home? And they separate out how we actually conduct ourselves versus some kind of religious activity or behavior. And so... God, in verse 36, <laughs> says something really funny. He says, why do you go around so much changing your way? And what he's doing is he's kind of saying, what's up with the hypocrisy? You come up to the temple and it's all, you know, clean language and high fives with the priest and give him this thing. And then you strip off Saturday morning and go naked up to the high place and spend the day fornicating with all these people in the community. And then you come back and you try to raise a normal family and think, oh yeah, man, I want healthy kids and I want them to have some knowledge of God. And he said, man, every day you're a different person. You're just a bunch of chameleons. So he's getting on to them saying, why are you always changing your way? So God is seeing that and then he throws in really quickly something (laughs) that's just tied to something he's already said. And you shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. He's moving back to these two hopes that they had. There's the story, the conversation. Remember I told you, the boiling pot from the north. That's the first thing Jeremiah ever talks about. It's coming from the north. It's the prophecy of destruction. 
Remember what I said, how the people responded to those first things where that rumor, hey, Babylon's on the rise. It's not a big deal. We got three things in our favor. We got the temple of the Lord. And we've got a vassalship relationship with Assyria and a vassalship relationship with Egypt. So we got the temple of the Lord, we got Assyria, and we got Egypt. In this sermon, God has said, I'm not arising from the temple to save you this time. And Assyria can't save you. They're going to be whooped. And when they're finished whooping Assyria, they're going to whoop you, and then they're going to whoop Egypt too. And so God is kind of laying out to say, it's, this is coming, and they're going to embarrass you. He says, put to shame by Egypt, put to shame by Assyria, and now is the prophecy of the captivity. Last line in chapter, uh, last verse in chapter 2. From this place also you shall go out with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust. That's Egypt and Assyria. And you shall not prosper with them. So what God is saying is uh, Assyria can't help you. Egypt can't help you. Listen to this. Make sure you get this one. I won't help you. Search all over the Bible. It's one of the few times that God comes to a place and He says, I'm done. Now, as Jeremiah begins to preach this, he preaches in hope of repentance. God proclaims in hope of repentance But one of the things that God knows is the future. And he is giving clear hints about what is coming. When he says, you shall go out with your head, hands on your head, it's captivity. Jeremiah is telling the country in this verse, you're going to fall. Jerusalem, you're going to fall. And you're going to be led out of this city, out of these great walls, out of these great gates, out of this great city. Just like this. You're going to be chained together. Your hands will cover your head for two reasons. One, it's a symbol of oppression. And two, you'll be covering your head in woe and shame. Haven't you ever seen people go, Oh, God, what have we done? You ever seen that? That's what they'll be doing. It'll be a symbol of oppression. And it'll be a symbol of woe. And it's coming. And so in all of this, God has led up in just this first main sermon after the first prophecy. The prophecy is the boiling pot. And then the sermon is, here's why the boiling pot's coming. Remember that God controls all world events. How many world events does God control? Okay. Remember that. Next time you want to go on a political rant on Facebook. Okay. We don't sound like we really trust God very much in our ranting. We just don't. (laughs) We sound kind of lame. God is in control. He is in charge. And he is raising up Babylon for his purposes. God will even use wicked kings, wicked rulers, wicked nations to accomplish his will. He will. 
And He will later punish them for their wickedness. But He uses them. And so God is raising up Babylon. Babylon is going to come down and march through Assyria, down into northern Israel, down into Jerusalem, down into Egypt. And Babylon is going to rule the known world at the time, almost all the way over into Asia. We don't know enough records of how far over into Asia they got, uh, because there's just not a lot of record for that time period over there. But it's going to be big. They're going to be incredibly... Those Babylonian kings are going to be a huge dynasty and a powerful force. What God is telling the people is, you've sinned. And then he's telling the people, and you still don't get it. Now what God is going to do, and we will be glad to hear of this later, but we don't get it now, is... He will extinguish idolatry of this kind from Israel forever. Israel will never, after this cataclysmic event that's coming in 586, so Jeremiah is preaching right now around 620, and the fall is going to come in 586, so you've got 20 plus 14, so you get about 34 years from right now that this fall is going to happen. Jeremiah's ministry up until the fall is going to be about a 34-year ministry. That's a long time to preach and have no one repent. I want you to remember something that I just... <clears throat> I've been in church life now for a long time. I'm 55. I think my mom was in church regularly when she was pregnant. So I could say that all my life I've been in church. Um, churches tend to get into grooves where convention influence and, I don't know, worldly influence starts trying to gauge everything by some kind of numerical quantifier. I get around pastors, and when pastors get around, they start talking. It's ridiculous. We're bad. So I was talking about, about you know, uh, where are you pastor at? I'm um, so-and-so. And, and what they really want to ask is, how big is your church? That's really what they want to ask. That's, that's, where, that's where all the question wants to get to. And so I'm waiting on it, you know. I'm waiting on it. And, and, and I'm, I'm an idiot, so I've been into all that before. God, over the last ten years, has just chopped my legs out from under me about all that stuff and, and helped me uh, not be as big of an idiot as I once was. But compared to Jesus, I'm still this huge idiot. He's so perfect and righteous and true. But um, <clears throat> So it's always getting toward this. And we start, and, and so that's kind of how we're going to, we're going to, you know, it's kind of like comparing horsepower in people's motors in their car. You just start having this conversation or the how, how big their gun is or how many fish we caught or how much did the dress cost or whatever. We start talking about these things and, and God is just not interested in that. In light of how we think today, Jeremiah would be an abject failure. He would be an absolute disaster. Nobody listened to him. He had this little band 
of a remnant. That was it. They, they burned his sermons. He was an abject failure, but he was dead on. So it's important for us to understand that success with God is a matter of faithfulness. That's what he's looking for. Faithfulness will bring in its season the right kind of fruitfulness. But the goal is faithfulness. Faithfulness to the Word of God, to the person of God, to the nature of God, to the people of God, to the purposes of God, to the promises of God. Faithfulness to that. (coughs) Jeremiah stayed faithful. He struggled. Oh, goodness, did he struggle. I've never been so bummed that I wished I'd never been born. I've never been so depressed or dark that I thought that I wish that the day was cursed when they announced my birth. Never been there. You may have. That's got to be a dark spot. But Jeremiah, faithful, godly, wonderful prophet of God, is so discouraged. So what I want to tell you is be faithful. You can't see what God's really doing. In your faithfulness. You can't. God has not given you eyes to see it, ears to hear it. But it matters. What Jeremiah did then has impacted the life of Israel eternally and the life of the new Israel, the church, eternally. And he stayed the course through all the discouragement and all the things. And it doesn't get any better. (laughs) It gets worse in Jeremiah. We're going to kind of go through this. You feel like you just got on the roller coaster and we're on the biggest hill going down, going, oh, this is terrible. I want to tell you, we hadn't gone down the big one yet. I remember the great American scream machine over at uh, Six Flags in in Georgia and, and... the the first hill was the one everybody talked about. But the first hill wasn't the one that got you because you went, ding, 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 and it started up. It was the second hill that got you because you were moving. You were just flying along and all of a sudden it just drops and you're like, oh. And I, I can remember riding the screen machine. Jeremiah is like that. First hill looks like the doozy, but it's not. It's going to get worse when they actually turn on him and begin to curse him and lock him in stocks and let him bake in the sun for having taken this message to the people. It's going to get worse. So, a couple of things I want to leave you with. One, sin is illogical. If you haven't written that down yet, this is a good time to write it down. Sin is illogical. This is going to save you a lot of wear and tell. Do you know how I expect sinners to act? Illogical. That's how I expect sinners to act. It has saved me a lot of wear and tear. I no longer say, I can't believe they did that! You know what I say now is? That's exactly like sinners act. That's illogical. I expect people who don't know the Lord to act exactly like they don't know the Lord. When I'm in Walmart, do you know what I expect people to do? I expect them to act lost. 
I don't run up in Walmart and get all offended by how everybody's acting in Walmart. You know why? Because I'm expecting everybody in Walmart that doesn't know Jesus to act lost just like they don't know Jesus. Just like I would act if I didn't know Jesus. Boy, does that just relieve me of a lot of worry. I don't have time to get mad at everybody who acts lost and who treats me disrespectfully or hurriedly or whatever. I don't... You know, it saved my feelings a lot of wear and tear. I used to get offended at lost people acting lost. (laughs) How dare they? (laughs) God's like, Bart, don't you get it? They're lost. They're without me. This, This has helped me tremendously. Sin is illogical. I even have come to understand that believers will at times act illogically. Now, I have a different responsibility with them because I do expect them to act differently and I have to confront them when they act sinfully. I hope that you understand that in your relationship with the church community. When a brother sins, the Bible says you are to go personally and to confront them. That's not the preacher's job. That's not somebody else's job. It says when your brother sins, you go and you confront them. That's your job. So make sure you're carrying that out. Uh, but we have a different job inside the church. of But I still... I've learned inside the church not to get quite so upset because I can think of how many times I've acted illogically and the grace God has given me. So that's the first thing. Sin is illogical. The second thing is our call is to be faithful. That's, that's Jeremiah's thing here is all around you people are going to sink into sin. They're going to, they're going to sink deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. And by the way, we can sit around and rant about all how immoral the U.S. is right now. I want to tell you something. There is not a place in the world that, was, that is as bad as this place was. I know of no place right now practicing high-place sexual immorality. Now, there are some uh, places in America that, that are uh, these uh, rave clubs and that are kind of like this, uh, but it's still not as prominent and community accepted as this time in the life of Israel. Everybody knew what everybody was doing at the high place, and it was an accepted norm. It's horrid. Our job is, in the middle of that culture, to remain faithful. We are passing on to a generation under us, after us, and generations after them, a faithfulness to God. That means sit at the table and eat with your children and grandchildren and talk about the Lord. Pass on through discipleship the things of God. Take time with your neighbors and people that you evangelize to build lasting relationships and to get the gospel into their Lives and make sure they deeply understand the gospel. Be faithful. I think that the challenge for us today in our culture is to be prophetic against our culture in a way that invites the culture to us through love. This is what's called the grace and truth paradox. We are called to tell the truth to everyone in every situation, but in such a gracious, inviting, loving way that they are enamored with the beauty of the gospel of a forgiving, loving, gracious God. 
It has to be both. That's what Jeremiah's preaching does. You'll see how Jeremiah goes between law and the offer of grace. Law and the offer of grace. Exposing sin and inviting repentance and forgiveness. You'll see that alternate all through his ministry in a way that you and I can very easily model ourselves to be prophetic against the sin, yet graciously inviting to the sinner. Sinners need to think that they could sit at any of our tables and be loved. They need to think that. Our neighbors, our co-workers. They need to think they could be in our home and be loved, even knowing that we did not approve of how they're living. They would know that if they were falling on the side of the road, we'd be the first to pick them up. That if they were sick, we would be the first to visit them. That if they were in prison, we would be the first to minister to them. That if they were homeless, we would be the first to work to try to find a place for them. Why? Because that's what Jesus told us to do. That that's what we do. And so there has to be this cutting edge in our community where the thing we're known for is grace and truth. We do not give on the truth. But, oh goodness, do we give grace. We give it. We love. We forgive. We bear with. A couple of our members this past week were ministering to one of our men in our steps ministry who was an addict. They brought him up to the church, got him a shower in the shower area in the big house, cleaned him up, fed him, and helped him get into rehab. That's beautiful. You know why? Because that guy from some previous interaction knew that the guys in our church loved him. And when he finally came to the end, guess who he called? He called Kingsville. And he said, help me. He's in rehab now. He was nasty. They brought him up. They got him washed. They got him bathed. Got his clothes washed. Got him him in rehab. Went and met with his landlord, explained to the landlord what's happening. You know, that's beautiful. That guy knows that we hate addiction and we hate the use of drugs and that we stand firm against all that stuff. He knows that. He didn't need an email from us on it or a Facebook rant about it. But he knew that we loved him enough that we would shower him wash his clothes, feed him, and take him to rehab. That's grace and truth. It's hard to balance it because it's costly. That costs two men two days of their time. Time's valuable. But those men willingly, lovingly took from their families that time and gave it to this man to rescue his life and hopefully to save his soul. That's just an inkling. Of what our church is doing. I sat at a lunch today and just wanted to cry. Lunch over with 
this new Sunday school class that we birthed with several of the ladies in our church and their ministry to single moms who are hurting. And there's four single moms in there, two of whom have literally been rescued by our church and are now in housing provided by our church members in part to support them. They're in discipleship that meets weekly. Their lives are coming together. One of the ladies, the last night, she spent, before we helped rescue her, she laid on the floor all night on top of her baby because of gunfire in the project she was living in in Alexandria. Our church rescued her, put her in safe housing, ministers to her. She's in church every Sunday. Today she's bringing friends to reach out to who are other single moms. This is gospel. But it is costly. It takes time and money and energy and sweat. And it hurts. And it's gospel. This is it. And so, what our church has to do, if we want to be good stewards of all of this that God has given us, we have to walk that grace and truth paradox. So that's the second thing. Be faithful. God isn't asking us to save the world. He's asking us to share the gospel and be faithful. If He's going to save the world, that's how He's going to do it. He's going to do it in personal relationships at the church level. God is not sending an angel in in a UFO next week to fix this broken place. He planted us in our neighborhoods and in this church and in this community to fix this broken place. We have and are the answer. Now, when I say we're the answer, I'm not meaning the Savior. But we are this thing that touches people's life in such a way that they go. Listen, last Sunday, one of those two girls that I just talked about, she came to me after church trembling. Could hardly stand, trembling. I said, give me just a minute to, to greet some folks and I'll meet with you. And she rushed off hastily a few minutes later. So I left and I went to track her down. And I find her. She's sitting in the car. She's with Miriam Johnson. She's weeping. She said, I listened to your sermon today and finally everything made sense. Because what you talked about was the proof of God's love flowing through God's people. And I realize today that everything that God has done for me through these people, Bill Johnson and Miriam Johnson, is simply God loving me through them. I realize today that God loves me. She said, I think I'm going to bust. That's the gospel. That's it. And I would love for a whole community that we live in to be about to bust because of how we touched them and they said, Dear God, you love me. You love me! But how did I feel it? You touched me through a human being at Kingsville Baptist Church. Ah, that's great. So, let's go be faithful. Pray with me. God, our Father, in the name of Jesus, make us faithful. So that one day, what you said through Peter will be true. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that in order in which the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, 
glorify God on the day of visitation. (laughs) That's what we want, God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of minutes before we go, do you want to ask any questions? Thankfully, I noticed you came out in spite of the Super Bowl. Obviously, it's because the saints weren't in it. We did have an alternate plan for tonight if the Saints were in the Super Bowl. By the way, we did. We did. You know that doesn't happen a lot. You heard. You heard about. I got to tell you this one joke. Okay, this is a great joke. It's the story of uh, uh, Boudreaux. Boudreaux dies and goes to hell. You heard that story? Boudreaux dies and goes to hell. And so you know, grew up in South Louisiana. He dies. He goes to hell, and he's he's in hell. And he's just sitting there, and he's not... This is so bad theology. Just ride with me, okay? And he's sitting there, and, and it's just not getting to him. And so the, the, the demons come to him, and they say, Boudreaux, it's like the, we got the temperature way up, and, and it's not even bothering you. He said, man, this is kind of like a June day down on the bayou. So they said, turn it up. Turn it up. So they crank the heat and hell up. Come back, and Boudreaux just starting to get a little bit of sweat on him. I said, Boudreaux... Um, it's still not bothering you. He said, oh, no, it's kind of like middle July. So finally they turn the furnace on the highest it'll go, come back, and Boudreaux's sweating, but he's fanning, just sitting there. He said, what is this? He says, it's kind of like a Sunday in August down on the bayou. He said, man, how are we going to get to Boudreaux? He said, well, he's never lived in cold climate. Turn the heaters off and let's freeze it over. So, man, they turn the heaters off and it just, the whole place ices over. And they run over and Boudreaux's jumping up and down going, Woo! Woo! They said, Boudreaux, what is it? What is it? He said, the Saints must have won the Super Bowl! (laughs) That's one of the funniest Saints jokes I ever heard. Love y'all. Good night.